brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Back in the saddle and ready to ride, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while we know the Hollywood-wielding sorcerers of the entertainment industry love to present us with a leave-it-to-beaver, happy little suburbia depiction of America, but very rarely do they ever really show us how the sausage is made, and very rarely do many of us even think to look. This country is a wild ride that is operated on a dark engine beneath the hood, a deep state of unelected shadow organizations, think tanks, and privileged insiders responsible for programs like MKUltra, Operation Mockingbird, the deployment of economic hitmen, the removal of heads of state, the installation of puppet dictators, drug running, cultural programming, media infiltration, black budgets, black boxes, and so much more. Although many of these operations have been exposed to some degree, there's never really any accountability and rarely even full disclosure. And when it comes to the darkest aspect of the intelligence world, political class depravity and elite circles, child abuse and human trafficking, the lid clamps down harder and faster than almost any other subject. We sometimes get glimpses into the darkness with cases like the Finder's Cult, the Franklin Scandal, and the affairs of Jeffrey Epstein. But again, justice never really seems to be served, and the story always seems to just get swept away. Although thanks to journalists like today's guest, Philip Fairbanks, that might change someday. If you don't know, Phil is a writer with 20 years publishing experience. His work has appeared in the peer-reviewed Journal of Art After Image, Paranoia Magazine, The Goldwater, and several other print and online publications. He's courageously written a new book entitled The Pedogate Primer, The Politics of Pedophilia, which seeks to expose one of the darkest of dark undercurrents that runs through many of the systems, people, and organizations that build out the power pyramid, and I'm psyched to have him here to talk about it. Boldly going where few dare to go, a true truth-seeking journalist and champion of the people, Philip Fairbanks, welcome to the higher side. Well, you know, it's an honor to be here. Honestly, kind of surreal. Like I was telling you before, six or seven years ago when I first listened to this show, I never would have figured I'd be on the show. <laughs> so yeah, this is a real thrill. First of all, though, I guess I'll introduce myself. Uh, a lot of people, most people aren't familiar with me. Now, I've got the one book so far published. I've got another one being edited, which, by the way, 
I feel like you're either in my head or reading my emails because it's literally the tentative title is Deep State Penetrating the Veils of the Unelected Shadow Government. So when I heard those words put together in almost that order, I, I got to say my, my eyes perked up. <laughs> but no, I've been, you know, you can call it conspiracy culture, but I try and stick to the facts, what's as verifiable as possible. There's a lot you can find in FOIA and there are certain journalists outside of the mainstream and even occasionally inside the mainstream that if you piece the pieces together and you stitch them together, you know, you start to see the bigger picture. Like for me, you know, it started with, I guess, I'm about to turn 40 in a couple of years. So I remember JFK fever in 93. It was the 30th anniversary. And then JFK led to MK Ultra when I was about 17. And from MKUltra on, just been obsessively studying the security state. And as for this book and why I wrote it, it's the story of child abuse. It's something that, like you said, people don't want to hear about it. People don't want to think about it. And I'll be honest, this was hard to write. I had nightmares. I had an insomnia. You know, I would wake up two or three times a night. This is stuff I've been studying for years and years. but when you're wallowing in it for like 10 to 15 hours a day, it's rough. It is. Mm -hmm. It's rough. And this is a difficult read. It's not heartwarming, unfortunately, but it's stark and it's true. And it's a story that needs to be told. The reason why it's a topic close to my heart, honestly, you know, I've had several friends and exes who were victims of child abuse. Mm. I actually was there and talked a couple of exes into confronting their step rapists in front of their mothers. And you don't want to be in that room, okay? But I'm glad I was there. And that's kind of the way this whole book process, putting this book together, has felt. Because it started as a chapter in the Deep State book, which is being edited now, which is a little longer. But yeah, I go from writing about this, and Pedogate is just one chapter, and then I'm like, this could be volumes of books. That's why this is the Pedogate Primer, because it's just that first coat. Every chapter of this could have multiple books, and still the story wouldn't be fully told. So I'm really just trying to touch on as much stuff and get enough relevant details to like open people's eyes. I especially want, you know, I want this to be the kind of book that you can give to your normie friend, that you can give to your skeptic friend. Because, you know, hey, no, check out the bibliography. This guy's for real. He's using academic sources and it's, you know, New York Times and FOIA documents. And it's not made up. It's not Breitbart. He's using real sources. Mm -hmm. This is stuff that's really happening. And it's scary, you know. So, yeah, hopefully that's what this book will do. Yes, it is a great read, although very uncomfortable. And you do present the information at a high level. You left the reptilian overlords out of this one, and for good reason. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But you cover a lot of ground. You write about the Finders, the Satanic Panic, Epstein, the Franklin Scandal, all sorts of little situations where some of this was exposed, as well as a whole lot of stuff I wasn't familiar with at all. But as you know, some of these stories have been circling for years, so they're not unknown, but nothing really seems to be done about it. And we know it's pretty risky stuff for a journalist to be covering anyway, so kudos to you. 
Oh, yeah. Anthony C. Sutton was a genius, but his reputation in Wikipedia page won't show that. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of rough. But I do take solace in the fact that, like I said, I know people are going to, you know, that's something I put in the introduction. People are going to say, oh, he's trying to profit off of misery. This is a grift. You know, I've actually read articles saying that people who write about child trafficking and institutional pedophilia, oh, it's a big money-making scam. And no doubt, I'm sure there are people like that, but that's not what this book is. And yeah, I definitely tried to cover the important stuff that folks like you and me definitely know, but then there's always deeper to go. That's what I keep learning, you know, is that I keep learning. But I also wanted to touch on some stories that are quite a bit lesser known. Some of them came to me through some interesting means. You know, I'm, I'm interested in weird fiction, and that's where the Hoisman connection comes in. And the Cleveland Street scandal, that's another one. You know, everybody's heard of Epstein, and a lot of people have heard of Franklin Scandal, Franklin Cover-Up. But the Cleveland Street scandal, which if you look at UK institutional pedophilia, this is one of the roots. This is one of the very foundational modern moments. I'm sure it didn't start there, but this is one of the first bits of trail we've got is the Cleveland Street scandal. And this embroils Oscar Wilde. You know, at the time, he's the talk of the town, even though he's a commoner, he's hanging out with lords and ladies and aristocrats. On London's East End, his plays are doing terrifically. Then he decides to write this book, which there's been some academic work saying that it's inspired in some ways by the Jack the Ripper murders and the Cleveland Street scandal. And the Cleveland Street scandal, he possibly had some dirt on, both in the book and the last play, The Importance of Being Earnest, they're both about people leading a double life. It's kind of a mirror into that, whatever was going on with Jack the Ripper. I do subscribe to the idea that whoever, or whether it was one or multiple people, it was likely someone from the upper class, you know, a surgeon and a mason, a royal and, a, and his friends, something like that. But around the time that this kind of thing is going, we got Prince Albert, possibly embroiled along with several other high-ranking officials in London in this Courier Boy scandal. And once again, it's so similar to the Franklin scandal, by the way, which also used these kids as mules and messenger boys. That was the cover. The cover story was their messenger boys, their telegraph operators. But in reality, uh, they were doing that just not in the traditional sense, and they also did other things. And when Oscar Wilde went to trial and was banished off to the New World, to America, it was because of homosexuality was a crime at the time, especially if you were a commoner and you'd had sex with the son of someone of some standing, a bit of lorded gentry, you know, that was Oscar's mistake. What may have held him off, and there's allusions to this in his work, were certain papers. And there was a theft that precluded the Cleveland Street scandal finally coming to light. Even though it was kept, you know, it didn't enter the realm of academia until decades and decades after it occurred. 
but yes, you know, somebody ran across some old police documents and it turns out that pretty much everyone in the trial for Oscar Wilde, from his lawyer to the defense and the judge, they were all customers of the Cleveland Street Telegraph Boys. And right after this theft, which some have surmised that it could have been, you know, some kind of papers, uh, imagine it is like Assange's kill switch, you know? Uh, they stole his kill switch papers. They stole the dirt he had. And after that, he got the highest penalty in British history for the charge of homosexuality. They really threw the book at him. And like I said, it's really no surprise when you consider the fact that he was embroiled, he was surrounded by the Cleveland Street gang, and he apparently, should we say, dabbled in a little bit of pederasty in addition to having relations above his station, which was a crime of itself in the time. But yeah, so Oscar Wilde is banished to America, and there seem to be possible clues in some of his last works, which it's weird how he had this meteoric rise and then this horrific crash, and it all sort of centers around the Cleveland Street scandal, which was hushed up for decades until these police papers came out. You know, and around the same time, there was, and I do cite a few academic papers regarding this, it was a weird time as far as children and sexuality went. The Victorian era is seen as being unsexed and repressed, but at the same time, there was this openness and sexuality with children that today, many scholars and academics and authors have been quite open about the fact that Guys like J.M. Barry and Lewis Carroll, if you hang out with little kids until they turn 14 and like take pictures of them naked, whether you've touched them or not, you're probably a pedophile. And these guys, you know, beloved children's authors, and I, I love Dodgson. I love his work. I loved it. And I don't believe that he was a child molester. But I think it's pretty obvious that he was a pedophile. There was an issue of certain parts of his diary disappeared at his death. Nobody knows why he and the Liddell family, Alice Liddell, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is based on Alice Liddell. It was a story he told for and about her. And there's so much in that book, by the way. And that's something, like I said, folks like you and me who've been into that, they know about there's... A lot of symbolism in Alice in Wonderland that has to do with drugs and the occult and sex and, you know, all this kind of... Dodgson was a genius. He was a mathematical genius. He was a whiz. But he was also a pedophile. J.M. Barry. I'm not going to say he had papers forged to make himself the guardian of the boys that he wrote of as the Lost Boys in Peter Pan and the Precursor to that story that he'd written, like Alice in Wonderland, specifically for and about these certain children, you know, when their parents died, he'd gotten close to them, he'd gotten close to the family. When the parents died, I can't remember which author, but there was an author, a contemporary author at the time, who said something about J.M. Barry has such a peculiar touch on those he loves. They tend to die, you know? So it was like this thing. And he would get close to people's 
kids and then one of them would die or something like that and then he would be the shoulder to cry on and once again i do not believe he was a child abuser and even the people the children refer to him as unsexed as basically neutered that's the reason why his marriage is thought to have failed because he didn't have a sexual drive so you know and let me just step in here because yeah. you kind of glossed over that little bit of uh, a story there where he got custody of some kids because yes. he changed the name. It was supposed to go to the maid, yes. I'm not going to say he intentionally forged it, Well, <laughs> uh, but it is very incidental and interesting that when the Lost Boy's parents, the mother was the last to die, left in her will that the boys were to be taken care of by the maid. But J.M. Barry was the one who transcribed this and delivered this over to the authorities, and he accidentally wrote his own name. And for some reason, that's just accepted as fact that it was an accident. And it is also said, you know, the, the maid didn't have enough money to raise them. Still, that's very odd. <laughs> Whether or not these were child abusers, and I don't believe either of them abused children physically. But I do believe that they were pedophiles, and I do believe that even without touch, you can arm a child. You think they were psychologically manipulative and had these kind of tendencies, exactly. but knew that it was bad to act on? Whether they were innocent of it or not, they did, yes. And the bit of the signing over by the maid, that's one that really gets to me, because it does just seem so suspicious. But yes, the boys themselves, one of them who Grew up to be, I think, bisexual, it turns out. And this is, you know, in early England when it was, I think it was still illegal at the time. They've said that he was not a sexual person. So it wasn't a child molestation of a physical variety. But I do believe that he had, as some have written, an unhealthy fixation on kids, and especially the ones that he was close to. And whether they knew it or not, right? Uh, I do believe it had an effect, yeah. And I also just wanted to throw out this real quick about Lewis Carroll, because you mentioned that he wrote Alice in Wonderland about Alice Liddell, and he was kicked out of the Liddell family, or like kicked out of associating with them yes. for some unknown reason. And curiously, his and diary, diary pages, pages are missing from around that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the missing papers in the Cleveland scandal. It's all a coincidence, I swear to you. Mm -hmm. No, it is kind of fishy. But that's the way in so many of these cases, like the Children of God and Dr. Ruth Wangerin said something about that, how you can't say it is so. You can just point to all these things and go, that's what it looks like, you know, because this is how the operation occurs at times. Right. And it's really uncomfortable to make any sort of accusations or claims. But unfortunately, in this particular realm, the justice system never really holds up the way it's supposed to. So we yeah. have no choice but to speculate a little bit. And these are their beloved children's writers to this day. They are enduring beloved. And I do believe that they had some sort of innocent, true love for children. But just the fact that in the case of Carol especially, there were stories that once they aged out, he lost interest. Okay, okay, buddy. You know? Oh, man. Yeah. Even if they didn't do anything, their works and 
terms like Neverland and Wonderland are synonymous with these mm-hmm. kind of communities online and stuff like that. Exactly. Are, have been used in child porn rings. Michael Jackson, who, once again, I don't know if he actually physically held a child. That those children were abused once they realized what had gone on and how they'd been used by someone they looked up to and idolized and someone they trusted, their own parents. So that was an unforgivable form of abuse, regardless of anything physical that did or did not happen. And I would encourage people, by the way, if you've got the stomach for it, David McGowan's work, both Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon and Program to Kill, the politics of serial murder, which is sort of a nod to the Eberleys, who were alleged child pornographers and members of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, who wrote The Politics of Child Abuse. The title itself is sort of an inside joke, a nod to a nod kind of thing. But yeah, the reason I mentioned MKUltra in the book, by the way, is I think that's an important place to start for the modern era. As for the Victorian era, I think there was a form of programming going on then, too. You know, I didn't mention Hoisman, but he was a weird fiction author who wrote these generally Romanoclef. It was stories about himself and people he knew where he changed the name, and that was a popular thing to do in France and England in the 1800s. You know, you would just change little details. But in his case, he ended up spending his last days cloistered away on sanctified ground because of the stories of child sacrificing Satanists. And he'd actually spent some time with Pierre Boulon, Joseph Pierre Boulon, who apparently was like the second coming of Gilles de Retz, who was a friend of Joan of Arc, oddly enough. This child killer from the 1600s or whatever was a friend of Joan of Arc or the 1300s. So. There's definitely a current of this, and I do believe that there is a sort of recurrent programming that, from MKUltra on especially, was really refined, and that's where we get to a situation like where, you know, the movie Cuties came out, and now we've got a movie that does not pass the DOST test (laughs) that could be considered child pornography because of its lurid and titillating nature and how it focuses on the genitals of prepubescent children and this movie has been lauded and applauded and any instances of hesitation towards calling this anything but a great work of art is met with cries of well you know you're you're a conservative or you're a right winger or you're a nazi which is odd because there are multiple leftists found just the trailer of the film disgusting And I understand that it may have a good meaning behind it, but unfortunately, I think that any decent message was lost in the portrayal, and you didn't need to actually victimize young girls and sexualize them in order to show that sexualization of young girls is wrong. But yeah, the cuties bit, you know, that comes from Netflix, which is, of course, co-founded by Bernays' grandnephew, I think it is. And Bernays' friend was Ivy Lee, who is another one of the fathers of PR, and was the uncle of William S. Burroughs, another famous pederast, incidentally. So, yes, I do believe that there's something that has been going on. And this is where I'll get cries of satanic panic, satanic panic. And no, I don't believe that. 
but I don't believe that doing karate or playing D&D leads to Satanism any more than smoking marijuana leads to heroin. By which I mean there are certainly some people who start the one and end up in the other, but that doesn't mean the one caused the other. Right. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely, there's a dark current, and I do believe that there's too many cases. They were high profile, and they're often, especially in the past, lesser so now, because they're able to keep us so amused by bread and circuses that we have a short memory for Nexium and Epstein and how weird it is that Eps, you know, the cameras and Epstein's and, you know, the stuff that, like I said, this is stuff people have gone over and over again. But stuff like that and the Franklin scandal and the Finders cult, they're these little blips that people soon forget about. And then they just go on about their day. But they keep happening. It's true. And uh, I wanted to ask you a little more about the MK Ultra chapter because you did mention it. And yes, we've covered MK Ultra before. We know they gave LSD to kids, did experiments in psychic driving, creating split personalities and all that stuff. But you do write about some of the offshoots and some of the lesser known programs. And I've heard you talk about them on other interviews as well. Oh, like Stargate. Yes. And Stargate's interesting. Talk to us about that a bit. Once again, it's not my idea. There are FOIA documents, and it's on the congressional record where multiple people were saying, hey, how come when you guys stopped doing that thing where you put people in a dark room and gave them LSD, you started doing this other thing with the same people where you put people in a dark room and give them LSD? You know, I'm half joking, by the way, because actually... No, there were people involved in MKUltra interested in Stargate and involved in Stargate, but they decided that actually, because that was an early consideration, there were certain ex-MK doctors who wanted to include the use of LSD, but from the XRVers who I've heard pre- and post-FOIA disclosure, and a lot came out recently, just in the last couple of years, too much for you to go through, but... I've heard pre and post where, you know, they realized they had a pattern, they had a model, and it apparently worked sometimes. Jimmy Carter says it worked anyways, and for some reason they kept funding it until Jimmy Carter accidentally said, well, nothing else worked, so we got our psychic spies to find the down spy plane. You know, and then the very next year after it shut down, the CIA is like, oh, by the way, they were doing that for 20-something years, but it didn't work. Then how come they kept going to Congress every year? Because they had to be reinstated every year. They didn't have a five-year lease. They had to go back, show their findings, prove that they were still worth the money that they were costing, and they kept getting paid. Right. Until Jimmy Carter opened his blab <laughs> and accidentally mentioned that psychic spies did what the entire force of the security state could not one time. And Project Stargate is when they start bringing in Ouija boards and channeling and all kinds of weird stuff there, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a Scientologist involved at the same time as this as well. And what makes it really interesting to me, there's also a mysterious death that some of the XRVers post-disclosure have come out and finally said, we think it's fishy. But yeah, you know, the Scientology connection I find interesting because this is around the same time that Operation Snow White is going on. You know, around the mid-70s, L. Ron Hubbard had people infiltrating everything. 
he had people in the IRS as janitors. You know what I mean? And then they would be sweeping up late at night and whoops, these papers don't exist anymore. And he had people everywhere, you know? Talk about an evil genius. And I mentioned LRH, as they call it in Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard in the cults chapter because Scientology is something everybody knows about. But something that's very rarely mentioned is, you know, the multiple allegations of child abuse. You know, we know about the kidnapping and the mind control and the financial rape, but there's a lot of child abuse stories. And it's said that L. Ron Hubbard was impotent, you know, kind of similar to Jay and Barry, maybe. It said that L. Ron Hubbard was impotent, but it is also so that he spent his final years on a boat in international waters, evading taxes, surrounded by like 12 and 13 year old girls in hot pants. So whether, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And guys like the Children of God and L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, to quote Jesse Pinkman, they can't keep getting away with this, but they do. And as I said, it's just blips on people's radar, you know, just blip, 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 one, two, three. Then it's out the other ear, but it keeps happening. And in the case of the Finder's Cult, that's one of the few cases where we definitely know that there was a CIA connection because the feds were involved now. Multiple federal agencies, multiple police departments, all of a sudden it became an internal investigation by the CIA. Well, then that means that the CIA was involved in this cult that was having kids get naked and cut up goats. And that really happened, you know? Yeah, there's photos. Yeah, yeah, there's evidence of that. And telex documents talking about selling kids to Hong Kong and a whole pamphlet. The same thing with the children of God. These people even wrote pamphlets on how to abuse children, how to procure children, and they kept getting away with it. They never saw justice. They might get raided once or twice. You know, you can only have naked, feral children running around outside of a van that stinks with two grown men who refuse to speak to you for so long before the neighbors will call the cops, you know? Yes, and just before we move on completely from MKUltra and Project Stargate, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the work of Dr. Jose Delgado. This is pretty interesting. Ah. Towards a Psycho-Civilized Society. This guy wrote a book called Towards a Psycho-Civilized Society, which is really a scary title to me. I just don't like the idea of a psycho-civilized society. But some of the experiments he did, you know, the CIA at the time was doing all kinds of weird stuff, like putting transmitters in cats to try to turn animals into their own spies and see if they could control their motion using implants and things. Delgado worked with implants and electrical means of stimulating electrical. And he also worked with electromagnetic frequencies. Uh, one thing that I find really, really interesting about Delgado's work is he worked on some of the same frequencies that our cell phone towers work on. And some of his experiments, he found that animals could be made more docile or more aggressive depending on how you turned the dial of these electromagnetic frequencies. Because, you know, there's this human resonance, and we're messing with that, you know? I'm not an eco-fascist, I swear. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I do believe that 
electromagnetic pollution is a bad thing. I think that 5G is going to have a what McLuhan would call a rearview mirror effect. Like, we won't know what it's going to do until it's too late to do anything about it. We've got shows like Utopia and The Feed and Upload or something on Amazon Prime. There's all these TV shows, basically commercials for Black Mirror, for the dystopian future that could await us in five to ten years. And people are just being entertained by it. Right. I kind of have the same thoughts about Stranger Things because it starts off with them abusing Eleven mm-hmm. and she's in an MK Ultra project and they're cracking open other there worlds you, yeah. and talking to demons. But then in the later seasons, so it's, it's like a mixture of Stargate and MK Ultra. Exactly. Right. And then in the later seasons, it's like, oh, she got superpowers. They mm-hmm. didn't hurt her that bad. She's now she's now uh, able to oh, save her friends. Thing. Isn't yeah. this cute? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It you know, in Paranoia Magazine was one of my first print publications, apart from After Image, and I remember the very end of it. Oh, I was such a naive, like nineteen, twenty year old, saying, "If only one day there was more awareness of MK Ultra, then maybe we could make a Netflix series about it and make millions of dollars while sexualizing." Barely pubescent kids. Did you notice that, by the way, the media coverage of that show? They started calling the kids sexy when they were still like just 12, 13, and 14. Like, is that supposed to be normal? Does that make me a Nazi or a right? I'm not a right winger or a Nazi, I swear. But (laughs) like, just being against that, like, is that not just natural? Yeah, it doesn't make us prude to think that kids shouldn't be sexualized, but this isn't new. And it goes all the way back to Shirley Temple. Yeah, yeah. Let's let kids be kids. I am so glad that I grew up in a world before social media, in a world before the internet, before smartphones. There's a sanctity and privacy that I believe is implied by the Fourth Amendment that kids today the generation after Zoomers especially, will never even understand. I I forget, it might have been Kuhn who had the term perceptual transcend. You know, the thing that is jumped to cannot understand the thing that it jumped from any more than vice versa. And that's what's coming in the next few generations. Kids will not understand the idea of privacy and alone time and just being themselves Social media adds all this pressure. That's another chapter in the book. I do a whole chapter on how social media and apps and YouTube, YouTube still monetizes. I would call it child abuse, yeah. That chapter was the most eye-opening to me because I've heard of Elsagate and I saw the Daniel Tosh thing and I thought that Elsagate was kind of just this thing where they would have these videos of like dripping vanilla ice cream on kids. And yeah, that's gross. And it's not technically wrong, but it, it's it's, it's imagery that is wrong. And what's even crazier is that that other stuff you go into where you they have wake up. The, yes, the literal yes. like pedo grooming gangs. Right. The hashtag was called YouTube wake up. Tell people about this. They're, they're these videos, millions and billions of views. And making massive money for YouTube and sometimes for these girls. 
the channel that Daniel Tosh talked about, I hate that he's a better journalist than most of the people on CNN or Fox News, <laughs> you know, because he's broken a couple of stories. Like he was talking about Walmart recently. And I'm like, yes, they are union busters. No, the YouTube wake up movement. I was involved with that for a couple of years. There was a group exposing exploitation, Academy Awareness. And I was hanging out with these guys, you know, online and in discord and things. And they were working towards raising awareness. And then the whole like Matt Watson thing came along. And then everybody thought it was about this Matt Watson guy, even though the term groom tube precedes YouTube wake up, which precedes Matt Watson. And, you know, whatever you think of this one guy, at least he got New York Times to write a story about it. And then YouTube put a Band-Aid on it. They shut down the comment sections for kids. But one of the channels that's mentioned in one of the stories that I cite, Belon Kazar, in like Venezuela. Yeah, it's in Venezuela. You know, very poor country. This Venezuelan YouTube channel that advertised secret well, they didn't say secret. They said discreet Bitcoin payment for special behind-the-scenes footage. And they still have a join now button. I checked a few months ago, and they have a join now button. So whether they've been demonetized and run ads, I didn't watch the video. <laughs> but I checked the page to see if they were still there. Yes, still getting millions of views. And they have a join now button. And... I should press it one day just to see what their tiers are and what they cost, at least. It is stomach-churning stuff. Yes, let me actually step in here and read a quote from the book where you're talking about this Venezuelan, quote-unquote, mm, beauty Kazar factory. Yeah, Belancazar. Here's the quote. You say, Sources from within the beauty factories of Venezuela spoke of butt implants in some girls by age 12 of waists crushed into painful straps for weeks, as well as intestines removed by age 16 or painful mesh sewn into the tongue, making eating painful. The head of the Belancazar Beauty Factory said that the average age for a girl to get a breast implant is 16. He said, to be a beauty queen, the breasts can't be too large or too flat, Often the surgery is just to change slightly the shape or the size. It also depends on which contest the girl wants to compete in. Insane. Uh-huh. Yeah. And if you're going to do that to your kid for, for money, what wouldn't you do to your kid for money? And that's something I didn't put in the book because I would consider that conjecture, okay? But just speaking frankly, yeah. If you're going to abuse your child like that, of course you'd sell them to some rich old man. It's disgusting. I'm not saying all these kids are trafficked, but I almost guarantee that a few of them are. And even if they're only being trafficked by the Beauty Academy and YouTube, and owns YouTube, yeah, they're profiting off of this. I would call that trafficking if you're perpetuating this. And here's another weird thing I noticed. They have live streams where they're still allowed to have comments, okay? So for some reason, because it's not, I, I guess they only shut it down for accounts owned by kids and for children. So number one, then YouTube has decided this channel is not for children, uh, apparently. You know, it's, 
They only act when they're made to. Right. YouTube should stop worrying about alternative journalist channels and conspiracy-ish channels and worry a little more about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Facebook, for instance. Facebook is so worried about fake news. You want to hear some real news that's been in New York Times and all the other major papers, Washington Post, whatever? About one-third to two-thirds of all child grooming instances occur on either Facebook, WhatsApp, or Instagram. Guess what? They're all owned by Zuckerberg. Hmm. So in other words, the lion's share of all incidents of the beginning of child grooming occur on a Zuckerberg-owned platform. Wow. They kicked me off, I think, for the title of my book, because (laughs) it's apparently a term used by QAnon people, and they were banishing everything QAnon-related. And I'm not even a QAnon person. I, I know some QAnon people. They're good people. You know, the ones I know, anyway. I'm not going to speak for the whole crew of any crew. But apparently, because of the title on my book, that's what I'm guessing, because they gave me no reason and no way to appeal. They just booted me. And it was the day after I'd made an author page. So I'm pretty sure that was the reason. But yeah, they should clean their own house. They want to boot me for using this term. But maybe you should be more worried about the massive amounts of child abuse you're facilitating and profiting off of. Amen, man. Cheers to that. And another case I wanted to try to fit into the first hour was John Benet Ramsey, because mm. I don't think we've ever talked about it. And it is quite a strange one. I've heard all sorts of theories. Yeah. If you watch the interviews with the parents, something is definitely off. Yeah. Some have suggested that her special needs brother might have killed her accidentally and the parents wanted to protect him. But that story can't hold up because they found the DNA of an adult male under her fingernails and Mm -hmm. inside of her pajamas, apparently. Quite gross. But what are your thoughts on this case? And there was medical evidence of sexual abuse. I think that we'll never know because the parents... Whether the parents were guilty or not, I'll tell you what the parents are definitely guilty of. They're guilty of at least allowing their child to be abused multiple times, possibly by multiple someones, and she was sexually abused. There's medical evidence of that that predates the murder, so it wasn't even a new thing. And yeah, oh, beyond that, it is a really weird case. The thing they're most guilty of, though, I think, is the fact that we'll never know now because the cops and the preacher and his best friend Fleet, the industrialist, they were all guilty of exfoliation of evidence, if nothing else, including the cops who just stood there and watched. And why did they wait like 12 to 13 hours to do the coroner's report? You know, there was so much wrong with that case. And... Two of the main sources for that chapter were Dave McGowan's program to kill and Stephen Singular's book on the subject. And Stephen Singular believes that the parents were innocent of the murder, at least, but that Joan Benet, possibly through the father, was being at least photographed for child pornography, Hmm. if not knowingly trafficked. Access Graphics was his company and became a millionaire real quick. And the amount of money that they asked for, that the kidnappers asked for, was exactly the same amount as the bonus he'd just gotten 
you know. Oh, and let's not even get, you know, what's his name? Oh, the guy with the harp. You know, I'll have to find it here. Bill McReynolds? Bill McReynolds, creepy old Bill. And Bill's wife, Janet, wrote the play Hey Rube, which, by the way, is also a book by Hunter S. Thompson, and I won't get into those theories today. But Hey Rube was written in 1976 about a ritual murder, one that actually happened, Sylvia Likens. But the date that it happens on concurs with the rape of Bill McReynolds's daughter's friend, uh, kidnapping and rape. Yeah, 22 years to the day, the day after Christmas. And the way she was posed in the play, and there was just so many weird parallels. Also, the guy had this harp, apparently. This is one of those things I had to like go to an archive of an archive to find the article because it had been scrubbed. But yeah, he had like names of all the children he loved who had died too young. It's like, you shouldn't have that many names on your heart, Mr. Weird Man, who wanted Joan Benet's ashes mixed with his ashes and glitter. Dude. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah, I believe that there were probably multiple culprits in the case. And I don't know if she was trafficked but i agree with steven singular that she was probably used for child pornography and let me just add a couple of details here yeah when it comes to bill mcreynolds this is a guy who was a former university of colorado professor he dressed up as santa claus mm -hmm. for the ramsey household three yeah. years in a row <laughs> he gave jean benet yeah. a card that read you will receive a special gift after christmas and then the day after christmas is the day that's 22 years after Reynolds' middle daughter and her friend had been abducted. And then you mentioned exactly. the Ramsey. Right there around the equinox or solstice, whichever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then you, you mentioned the uh, father of JonBenet Ramsey. And yeah, he had this company he that had was. Military intelligence connections. Yeah. Yes. His company was a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. In 1996, grossed over a billion dollars, yeah. then his daughter is killed, and the next year he sells the company to General Electric. What did he do, by the way? Nobody's ever written what he did to get that billion dollars. Right, and just the fact that we have this crazy sale of his company a year later, it's almost like he uh -huh. was told, hey, uh, the money needs to get funneled this way, or sell the company. Yeah. Like It's just this military intelligence, tech company, corporate espionage that is all circling around this case that raises all kinds of red flags. The same kind of thing you see with the Finder's Cult. Exactly. And the Finder's Cult is the only case where we have definitive proof of CIA involvement, right? But yeah, Children of God, Scientology, maybe even Joan Benet Ramsey, I believe there's a possible military intelligence connection. By connection, I mean there's at least spooks involved, you know? I don't mean it's a spook operation. And by spook, you could be a fed or not and still be a spook. You know what I mean? If you are knowingly an agent of the state or whatever you want to call it, because at the top, I don't think they consider it a state, you know? <laughs> but at the top, there's this interstice of certain occult secret societies, of the cult of national security. And these old money families that keep marrying into each other and having famous people. You know how like Bill Gates and Ellen 
DeGeneres are both cousins by way of Rockefeller. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> they just came up from nothing but Rockefeller blood. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. But the Joan Bonet case, I will never know. And I do mainly blame the parents and the police, which is why, you know, Stephen Singular makes a good case for multiple prominent people in Boulder and elsewhere being involved in the abuse. And not just her, but like a whole child abuse racket, the ring. I don't know if it was just child. It's never just child pornography because they have to abuse the child. So, yes, we'll call it a child abuse ring. But yeah, Stephen Singular, a true crime author, makes a pretty good case for the fact that it looks like there was some cover-up, it looks like powerful people may have been involved, but he feels the parents are innocent. And you know what? I do tend to sort of agree. I don't think that Mr. Ramsey was like, hey, I'm going to sacrifice my daughter. No, he just made a billion dollars way too quick. And then he was in over his head and had to pay the piper. Right. That's kind of my impression, too, is I think this caused the parents pain, but I also think they're aware of something larger that they won't talk about. And then the cops helped cover it up, you know, like let them rip off the duct tape and touch the body and do all this stuff. And the fact that nobody found her for so long, you know, when she was right in the house. How long was it? Oh, my gosh, it was several hours, I know. Yeah, and they just had a big party with, like, a lot of the elite of the Boulder community, which was, like, as Singular tells it, there were a few unsavory folks who had connections to a few of the movers and shakers of Boulder of that era. Hmm. Wild, man. And then if we were to move on to another section of your book that I found really fascinating. You've mentioned the, the satanic panic a couple of times, but the reason why people tend to dismiss this is because of the false memory syndrome foundation, which is another rabbit hole that's right. worth going into. Oh yeah. The tricky thing about the satanic panic is it is partly bunk. It is laughable. You know what I mean? Like, there were people who really thought that don't let your kids watch the Karate Kid, fundamentalist preachers told their congregations who listened to who to vote for and what to watch on TV, and then they wouldn't let their kid do karate because karate is the occult, and the occult leads straight to Satan, you know? So, you know, there is a lot of hogwash, I believe, in satanic panic, but there are definitely cases of ritual abuse. And I find it really weird that the FBI, their classification for ritual abuse makes it basically impossible for it to occur. So it's like, yeah, if you want to play that game, sure. But no, I believe that there are cases of ritual abuse, whether it's satanic or not. So many serial killers, like a good majority of the most famous serial killers were involved in the cult in some way, you know, had an interest or dabbled in the occult. But yeah, as far as the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, once again, we've got this weird mix of XMK Ultra researchers, influential academics, an alleged child pornographer, a proud pedophile, Ralph Underwager, hundreds of cases, 
He was an expert witness on child abuse cases for the defense, of course. Now, he's also on the record saying that two-thirds of women and girls who say that they were raped or abused are wrong, and then 60-something percent of them that were abused, it was actually good for them. He believes this. He also said in Paetica, which there's a Dutch journal of pedophilia, an actual academic journal for pedophilia, and he interviewed for it. And he said that pedophilia, sex with children, was a way to get closer to God. This guy was a theologian. He was an academic, and he was an expert witness. And he was also one of the founding members of Vocal, Victims of Child Abuse Laws, which was a group that in Florida, they were lobbying against mandatory reporting by authorities like priests and school teachers. You know, see something, say something. Like, imagine being against that, you know? I don't want that guy on my side. Now, Paetica was a bridge too far for Underwager when he said that having sex with kids gets you closer to God. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation said to him, you know, you've got to renounce that statement. And his reply was, no, I don't believe that there's scientific evidence that bears out sex with children hurts them. Yikes. And so he stepped down or was kicked out. I don't recall at the moment. But that's Ralph Underwager. The Eberleys, who I briefly mentioned before, the politics of child abuse. The LAPD was chasing them for child pornography. One extant issue of their magazine Finger, apparently, in this letters section, their letters from, once again, proud pedophiles, saying that they love their stories. There's really blatant racism. And hey, rape fantasy, if that's your thing and you keep it to yourself, that's fine. But like, it definitely, this magazine that they had, drew in a lot of pedophiles and people into rape and incest fantasy. And I think a lot of this stuff was drawn, but apparently there were also photos. But the LAPD could never pin it on them. You know, something I didn't get into in the book, but Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, The Secret History of LSD in the 60s, is basically a rehash of McGowan, honestly. But it's really good to get into if you want to learn more about the possibility of Charles Manson's trafficking and protection by the cops and maybe even feds. You know, John Wayne Gacy, that's another case where you have a serial killer who years after the fact, they're like, oh, now we have WGN. Now we have evidence he may have been trafficking some of these kids. And one of the parents was like, yeah, they never let me see my kid's dead body, which is so weird because the same thing happened to one or two of the girls who were victims of the Beast of Belgium, Marc Dutroux. So many of these cases, there's so many similarities that yes, it does start to seem like a pattern. It does start to seem like a network. And a few of these networks have been exposed. Some of them are low-level, like the Wonderland child porn ring. That's low-level nobodies. And then once in a while, you'll have a, an Epstein or Finder's Cult or Franklin Scandal that embroils some heavy hitters. Once in a while, Dennis Hastert gets told on. You know, Wikipedia... My whole Franklin scandal chapter, a lot of that's taken from Nick Bryant. 
who's done excellent work, Nick Bryant's book on the Franklin scandal. And Wikipedia is so mean to him. If you check the Wikipedia talk page, which I'm a geek, so I do, you know, they don't think that Nick Bryant is a reliable or credible source, which is weird because Vanity Fair, when they wanted to do a story about Epstein, they're like, let's get Nick Bryant. Yeah, he's one of the best. You know, and Vanity Fair is credible. So by the commutative property, you see what I'm saying? And I think that's why it, what makes it so easy for the satanic panic thing to set in, which it's a great way to hand wave things away. You know, mm-hmm. oh, look how ridiculous that is. And I'm not a big fan of Alex Jones. The reason why I'm on your show, I doubt Alex Jones would be interested in me because I can't sell water filters <laughs> for one. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like you're the real deal. William Ramsey, Ed Opperman, you. The folks I've interviewed with so far, you guys have one thing in common, the three of you, you know? I don't agree with you on everything, the three of you, but I respect you and believe that you believe what you believe. You know what I'm saying? I believe that you're not intentionally leading people astray. I believe that you're not just in it for the money, but that you really believe what you believe and are trying to help people, you know? Cheers. So, yeah. Yeah, cheers for sure, though. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I understand the satanic panic fears. I understand QAnon, Pizzagate. And hey, I bet some of that stuff is so because we don't know what was on those Epstein tapes because they disappeared except for the one that wasn't working, you know? So like it's obvious that there's people who do these things and they're good at hiding things. But I almost feel sometimes these blips we see are just for you and me, and our listeners, of course, just for the folks who are paying attention. Just like, hey, look, nobody cares. Here I am quoting pop culture again, like a normie liberal. But, you know, (laughs) look, nobody cares. That's what it is. It's these blips once in a while, but nobody cares. Dotson, Dotson, we got Dotson here. So let me ask you this. Is the reason that you live in the Philippines, does that have anything to do with doing this work? I mean, they can get you wherever you're at, (laughs) but it does feel safer being 9,000 miles away, you know? Yeah. I mean, how'd you end up out there? You sound like you're from Tennessee. Oh, yeah, yeah. I am from Tennessee. Now, the folks with the Goldwater, and by the way, I was watching one of your videos, and you're pointing out how likely you are to be demonetized and deplatformed. Let me just real quick, Torah3.com, that's some of the folks I work for. The Goldwater and Torah3.com. Torah3, you know, you can do live streaming, and you can do video sharing, which there's BitChute does one, and then you can go to... Chinese-owned DLive or Chinese-owned Trovo for the other. But if you don't want to support Tencent, there's TORA3.com. And yeah, so it all started, oddly enough, with a BuzzFeed story. Yes, I read a BuzzFeed story. I'll admit it. (laughs) That hurt more than saying that I didn't ask it. Okay, that's (laughs) over with then. But yeah, so it started with a BuzzFeed story, 8chan has created a news service for trolls. And I'm like, count me in, you know. And so next thing you know, I'm calling into a YouTube show. 
And Major Burdock, of course that's not his real name. <laughs> Major <laughs> Burdock says, I'd like to have tea with that guy. And the next thing you know, I'm in the Philippines. <laughs> and once again, I would like to stress, as my boss once said in an interview, I am not in the CIA, but I will add to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Right on, man. Well, this has been a wild ride for sure. You gave us a lot of good information and a crash course on many new stories or stories we haven't delved into at such depth. So mm -hmm. I appreciate it. And is there anything else you want to say about what you're planning next or uh, links or anything? The next book, you know, I don't really know which will come out because, like I said, the one's more of a mammoth. And the book I'm working on right now that I'm doing the reading and the note-taking for right now, you know, I don't know which will come out first, but I've got two books in the works. And then after that, then I've got, like, tons of drafts and notes related to, like, Kratom and biohacking and nootropics. And after I've got my three parapolitical books done... Then I want to finish those because I will need a break <laughs> from thinking about the Hall of Mirrors. Yes. Let me go back to learning how, like, what neurotransmitters do and what herbs were used by what cultures and what stories they came up about them and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And is there anything you want to tell people about following you online or links to give? Oh, them? yeah. Well, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm pretty sure that's because of the title of the book. But you can go to philfairbanks.com, P-H-I-L, Fairbanks, spelled just like Alaska, or as in that thing that doesn't exist. Like if it was a fair bank, they'd be out of business though, right? <laughs> so philfairbanks.com. Then you can also find me at Kafka Guy, like the Czech author, K-A-F-K-A -A Guy, G-U-Y. That was my first internet handle, and I don't know if that's why my life is Kafka-esque, and I don't know if I would have chosen a different handle if I'd have known, like, dude, your life will be Kafka-esque if you call yourself Kafka Guy. But, you know, yeah, I'm at Kafka Guy on Twitter. On Gab, I'm the Goldwater underscore Phil. I'm on MeWe under my own name. I think I'm on Minds.com also as Kafka Guy. And then on YouTube, nobody can spell it ever, Kunstkrieg Kinopix Studios. And Kunstkrieg as in art war, because, you know, that's one of the subjects I'm really interested in, is that interstice of artists and authors being drawn into occult secret societies and the intelligence world, and used for the intelligence world. Hmm. But yeah, so philfairbanks.com, at Kafka Guy at Twitter, Philip Fairbanks with one L on MeWe, and I think I'm also at Kafka Guy on Minds, which I haven't been using much, but we'll probably start using again soon. And Kunstkrieg Kino Picks, good luck. Because I've noticed sometimes I look for my videos, and I'll spell Kunstkrieg, and I know how to spell it. And I'll still have to scroll and scroll and scroll before. And I'm like, 
none of those videos you recommended to me had Kunsch Krieg in it because I came up with that term. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> or I thought I did. There's actually a German book about the CIA's involvement in modern art that was called Kunsch Krieg. But I was using it first, I swear. I think I've got proof somewhere. <laughs> but yeah. Right on, man. Ah, uh, well. Solid. You really do good work. It's a very dark subject, but people can't keep living in the dark. It's easy to turn a blind eye to this mm -hmm. stuff, but if you think it's uncomfortable to talk about, imagine living through some of this stuff. Exactly. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. And remember, the insular communities and the feeling that you can't speak, like, don't contribute to the culture that scoffs at the idea of the possibility, you know, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, for instance, and the Satanic Panic, and even QAnon, as well-meaning as it might have been, led a lot of normies to be like, any situation of organized pedophilia, they're going to scoff at instantly. Because some people, and like I said, that's why I try and stick with the verifieds. There may be more. I'm not saying there's not more. I'm just saying if we don't want to stop just preaching to the choir, we got to start small and wake people up and hopefully it'll be less insular, less normalized to sexualize teens like with the cuties movie or the toddlers and tiaras and stranger things. Right. But man, yeah, we got to talk about it until we get some sort of justice, sad as it is. Thanks for being brave enough to do the work, man. Keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. Hey, I appreciate you for having me on. And like I said, I don't know which book will be next, but I can't wait to send you a copy. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks again. You got it. Yikes, ladies and gentlemen. Yikes, indeed. This is one of those subject areas that I definitely think is important to return to. But the consequences for covering this sort of stuff are getting a bit more severe. Crazy, right? You would think this is one of the few things that could unite everyone except for the actual perpetrators, but whatever. It's important, so we go where we go. And it's really unfortunate that child trafficking and institutionalized child abuse are topics that got coupled the hardest with QAnon. But we know this is how they work, right? If something starts to get exposed to the point that it's not as easy to contain as it once was, then they go completely over the top in the other direction to the point that the general public dismisses it as crazy. So here we are trying to wrestle it from the QAnon residue as we do. A dirty job that must be done. Call me the Mike Rowe of conspiracy podcasting. Because as we do start to see QAnon fizzle out, at least maybe I'm just being hopeful, but I don't want to see the child abuse awareness component fizzle out with it. But Philip hit me up and said he'd been listening for a long time, he wrote this new book and wanted to get the word out, and I thought it was something that we hadn't talked about for a while now. I also considered some of the threads that he follows to be lesser known, and I liked his accent. Something about his accent and cadence I found to be very listenable. So we did it. I appreciate his dedication to the work, and I hope that we can help his book reach a larger audience. Some of the Victorian era stuff was really interesting, and it's tough to know anything for sure because of the time depth alone. 
But I also think about the personalities and qualities of a lot of the people who get famous writing material for kids. And yeah, they are the softer fellas. Big, warm, fuzzy heart Mr. Rogers types. And there's nothing wrong with that, but unfortunately, when you look at that archetype of a person who was abused when they were young and then turns into a pedophile later in life, some of those qualities do overlap. Obviously, there are good-natured children's story authors out there, but it can be hard to get right. And I do sort of recoil when I hear unverified accusations, because I've seen many people make all sorts of inaccurate accusations, and once the claims are out there, it soils a person's name, and sometimes when there's no merit at all. It's just something to be careful of. We don't want to do more harm than good. And of course, I'm not really talking about anything specific in today's show, just the severity of these sorts of claims in general, and how important it is to be really sure before we say anything about a person being involved at all with this sort of stuff. And it just sucks because we know that we don't have open and honest investigations in this area. We see time and time again that when one person gets caught, it starts unfolding into a larger network, and then the hammer comes down, they cauterize around the burnt part, and seal off the rest. So by definition, a lot of these things are quote-unquote speculation. I mean, technically it's speculation to talk about the Franklin scandal as if it was a real case because the people involved were found not guilty, and the actual victims, the kids, were sentenced for perjury. I'm sure most of you know that, but it is what makes the Franklin scandal the craziest case of all. And when you see so much funny business, you're kind of left to draw your own conclusions. Just don't fall into the trap of everything looking like a nail when you're swinging that hammer. (sighs) So yeah, guys, a return to the darkness. The next show is going to be a little bit lighter, I assure you, but also fascinating and also a lot more relevant to your individual lives. But I appreciate Phil's time and his efforts and the kind things he had to say about the show. The first hour of today's episode contained a lot of added layers to things we've talked about before and the John Bonet case, which I don't think we've ever really focused much on. But then in the second hour for Plus members, we got into the nuances of the Epstein-Maxwell situation, the Hunter S. Thompson stories, which, by the way, I didn't go back and read the original Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but I rewatched the Lucy scene in the movie, and it is fucked up. When I was 16, I guess it didn't register the same way, but find it on YouTube if you're at all curious, because it's not cool. And that's what makes me so sad. When I was a young kid trying to find heroes, trying to find people who were speaking truth to power or being very raw and just not conforming to consensus reality, Hunter S. Thompson was one of those guys that I kind of thought, yeah, fuck yeah, man, this guy, he's got some interesting things to say. Same with Robert Anton Wilson, same with Timothy Leary. And I don't know, if they aren't connected to some kind of intelligence network, a lot of these people have their own demons as well. They say never meet your heroes. I guess we could add don't look too deeply into their connections or the dark corners of their lives because you'll probably be disappointed too. We live and learn, right? We also talked about crimes of the cloth and religious organization scandals 
as well as the seventh floor group and a few other interesting things. It's really sad that we could say that we've probably done over a dozen shows on child abuse scandals and the lack of justice, and there's still no shortage of material. Heavy stuff, I know, but either way, thank you for listening. Running a show where no guests work is too taboo to at least examine is harder than it was 10 years ago, but we're still going strong. Do me a favor and leave me a message for the next joint session show at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus if you want to hear the full two-hour interviews I do and strengthen the bond between us. I'll see you next time. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Your move, traffickers, network protectors, and committers of unaccountable crimes. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning. And families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answer to questions never asked. So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance.